This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to a special ATP Tennis Radio podcast. We are live from the All England Club. The first week of the tournament is complete here at Wimbledon and there have been plenty of stories. We're looking forward to a big second week as well, but it's mainly about reflecting on the past. What has happened over the past six days? We are here on the broadcast centre roof of the All England Club and it's getting quieter. The play has finished for the day on day six Everyone can go home, enjoy a day off, and then we get ready for what is a special Monday, the best day of tennis for the year, in my opinion. I'm Peter Mercado. Joining me here on the Broadcast Centre roof is Chris Bowers. Lovely to see you. Well, great to be with you, Peter. And in particular, at the end of a week where we've had no rain, but we have had a player getting soaked on court. We'll come to that later. And we've had the new number one court roof used three times, well, let's, despite the lack of rain. Well, let's talk about that first off, because I can look over in the distance here and I see the magnificent number one court roof. We've obviously been here many, many times as the roof has been built. Fantastic to see it finished. As you say, we haven't used it for the rain because it hasn't rained all week, but the chance to get matches done later at night has been fantastic. Yeah, from a practical point of view, it's been brilliant, and it means that the tournament ends the first week absolutely on schedule. Uh, It has slightly changed the nature of the tournament. It's become a little bit more the Wimbledon with night sessions, which is what Wimbledon always said wouldn't happen, but it sort of happened slightly by default because we've gone later into the evening, but it's been some great atmospheres, and uh, I think everybody's very, very grateful to have the facility to play until 11 o'clock at night, if necessary, although we haven't had to go that late. Absolutely. So plenty to talk about coming up in the podcast as we reflect back on what's been a massive week. Big names getting through. There have been some upsets along the way. We will reflect on those. But the play from day six, we saw Rafa and Roger on centre court. Andy Murray was there as well in the mixed doubles. But let's just focus on uh, Roger and Rafa being clinical, getting through to this stage of the tournament as they have been. Be very impressed with Nadal. We'll touch on Nadal Kyrgios a little bit later, but his match with Joe Wilfred Songa from start to finish, he was just in complete control. Yeah, I think Nadal's looking very, very sharp. And in fact, when Nadal finished his match, I was thinking, yeah, uh, I know why Wimbledon has this grass court waiting, which makes Roger Federer the number two seed when he's number three in the world behind Nadal. But I actually began to think Nadal is in better form than Federer. Then Federer came out and played Luca Puy, and I thought, oh, I'm not so sure. They're both in really good form, and it will take a real blip or an astonishing performance from someone on Monday or Wednesday if they're not to meet in Friday's semi-finals for the second major running. Well, absolutely. And I guess from Roger's perspective, he did say after his first match, he lost the first set to Lloyd Harris, next-gen player, he was feeling a little bit slow out there, but then he started to get going and he's just sort of swept through from there. Yeah, a lot of players have been talking about the speed of the court. And Federer said after that first set against Lloyd Harris, it seemed so slow. I couldn't get the court to do anything. I was trying various spins and nothing would seem to actually take effect. I, I'm always suspicious about this. I was glad to hear Nadal saying after his victory over uh, Joe Wilfried Songa, 
I've been here for 15 years. For me, the grass is the same. The balls may be slightly different, and that may affect the, the speed of the court, but the grass is the same. And I thought, great, I'm glad someone's saying that, because that's always been my, my impression. I think an awful lot of it's in the mind. If you're playing well, the court seems to be a very nice pace. If you're not playing well, it's either too fast or it's too slow. But players have been talking about it feeling quite slow. And what was clear is that Federer clearly needed to get used to it, but for me, significantly, even dropping that set against Lloyd Harris, he still won his first round match in less than two hours. And for me, that is crucial to Federer's chances in the second week of Wimbledon. Absolutely. Now, the round of 16, as it sits, we've got it all complete now. Novak Djokovic will play Ugo Mbeer, the next-gen player. We'll talk about the next-gen players in a moment. David Goffard, nice to see him finding form on the grass. He'll play Fernando Vadasco. We've got Guido Paya, the 26th seed, taking on Milos Raonic. We've got Roberto Bautista Good facing Benoit Pair. Sam Querrey will take on Tennis Sangren, who upset Fabio Fonini on Saturday. Joao Sosa, who's just defeated Dan Evans, the crowd filing out of court one in five sets, will play Rafael Nadal. Kaini Shikori will face Mikhail Kukushkin. Matteo Berrettini will face Roger Federer. Is this a race in three for the championship? next Sunday, Chris? Um, not necessarily. And in fact, let's not underestimate Berrettini's challenge against Federer. Berrettini is in phenomenal form. You know, he won the tournament in Stuttgart. He then got to the semi-finals in Halle, where it took a phenomenal performance from David Goffin to stop him. It really was outstanding from Goffin. It was the turnaround performance of the year for the Belgian, who's uh, still in the frame here. And uh, he's picked up, he's won three matches. He had to go five against Diego Schwartzman. He saved two match points. Okay, on his own serve, 5-4 in the fourth. But nonetheless, his nerve is working. Winning is a habit. So, in a way, I think that Federer will underestimate Berrettini at his peril. And interestingly enough, Federer admitted that he doesn't know that much of Berrettini. They've never played each other. I don't think he's even practiced with Berrettini. And that's unusual for Federer because he generally practices with the youngsters just to get a look at them. Absolutely. Uh, the amount of youngsters have gone, oh, real thrilled and privileged to hit against Roger Federer. Then all of a sudden they're up against him. They get well beaten. It's like there is a reason why Roger is doing it. He's not just extending it and just trying to be nice. He is getting the intel on you before he plays you. I think Federer will beat Berrettini, but it's not a foregone conclusion. And Berrettini looks good. He's adapted his big game for grass extremely well. He's an intelligent player. I know some of the people from his racket company who say he's one of the, you know, the, the most sociable athletes that they have to work with and I think he's a very very smart cookie who will certainly learn a lot from this match and just possibly win it. It's been interesting to chart the rise of Italian tennis because we've, we've talked about this a lot on ATP Tennis Radio over the past couple of months. It's Berrettini who's flying the flag in the fourth round at the championships. Fanini went out in round three, upset. We've got Andrea Seppi who keeps on keeping on. There are a whole range of players well, Fabiano, from Italy. Fabiano, Fabiano had a good had, win over Karlovic. Yes, and you know Fabiano had a good win over Sitsipas in the opening round as well. What is it about Italian tennis at the moment that's proving to be so irresistible that we've got all these players? Mind you, it is just on the men's side. The women have struggled a little bit after a couple of key retirements. Yeah, I mean, the women had their golden generation around 2010 to 2015. They won the Fed Cup about uh, six, five or six times. Uh, Francesca Schiavone won Roland Garros. So I think they've had their golden generation and the men are coming now. I mean, it's an established tennis nation, but I do think that it's very, very important when you've got a promising player that they have somebody from their own country who can actually uh, force them to do better. You often see players in, in twos, 
neither wants to be the number two in their country. Now you've got four or five people. I think it's a great time for Italy. Fanini, I think, is still playing the leading role because he's the most experienced. But uh, I think with Cecchinato having done well at the French last year and uh, Berrettini doing well this year, he'll, he'll have a, a letdown at some stage, Berrettini, because he'll have a lot of ranking points to defend uh, you know, in the next six, nine months. But it's all part of the learning process, and he's only 23 years old. Well, it, it puts him in good stead for the ATP Cup coming up in January, having all these players. It's going to be a tough selection process to work out the five that are going to line up for Team Italy in the ATP Cup starting in January next year. But we look at some of the other storylines in terms of the fourth round at the moment. I'm looking forward to Novak Djokovic and Hugo Humbert. Humbert hadn't played a lot of grass court tennis. In fact, he hadn't played any grass court tennis leading up to this season. His results, he was here, there and everywhere. He was travelling to challenges. He was going across to ATP events. He ended up at Antalya, the lead up to Wimbledon. He was just trying to get matches under his belt. He comes in, he works his way through the draw, has a win over Gal Monfils, who retired in the final set, beats Marcel Grenoyers, the qualifier, and then demolishes Felix Auger Aliassime, who a lot of people were talking up to say, OK, here's the next-gen player who's going to step forward and had some reasonable results in the lead-up. He was dismantled. I was very impressed with Umber. He may not beat Djokovic, but I think he's a good chance of going at least four sets. Yeah, I think uh, as far as Auger seems concerned, I suspect the amazing achievements of the first six months of this year caught up with him in that. He looked emotionally tired as well as physically tired. But yes, it was still a great win for Umber. I have this theory about Djokovic is that he's most vulnerable in the majors in the third and fourth rounds. If you look at where he has the big struggles, they're often in those rounds. He dropped a set against Hubert Ogash, uh, and it, although it was only one... He was pushed very hard in the first set and then having won the first set when he could have run away with it, he then lost the second set, uh, having a, he saved a set point at 6-5 and then lost it on the tie break. So I actually think that the fourth round is a very good time for Umber to have a really good go at Djokovic. And like you, I'm not expecting the Frenchman to win, but I do know that Djokovic respects him because he sees him as a member of the up-and-coming generation. And of course, players like Okash and Umber don't yet have the pressure on their shoulders that Tsitsipas and Zverev and team have, um, which of course affected them so badly at the start of the week. The other one's interesting, a common theme on ATB Tennis Radio when we were doing the Queen's Hull a week was the form of David Goffin, who finally strung some wins together. He continues that on here. He'll play Fernando Vadesco, who had a good win over Kyle Edmund in the second round. That was a big win for him because he was down and out. He managed to turn that around and now sets himself up for a big second week. He's got the experience to be able to do it. We're not really talking about David Goffin in any sort of I calculations. Am. I am. And now you are. Because for me, I mean, I... I was so impressed with the way he turned his whole year around in Halle. I did his second round match on ATP Tennis Radio. I then did his semi-final and the difference between the two, not just in the way he was hitting the ball, but the way he was moving. So much about grass court tennis is movement. You have to accept bad bounces. You have to accept that the, the, the ground under your feet is not always predictable. And he looked like he was petrified of, of falling into the quicksand in the second round against Albot in, uh, 
uh, Haller. But he got through that match. And by the time he'd beaten Zverev and got to the semi-finals, he was moving so well. And, you know, we'll probably talk about the match of the week. And I'm sure we'll agree that it was Kyrgios against Nadal. Yes. But for me, the most entertaining match of the week was Goffin against Medvedev in the third round. I commented on that. Three and a half hours, seven, five, third, uh, fifth set for Goffin. But he really did work that out. He would not have won that match three weeks ago. Shall we put Milos Raonic in contention? We haven't really, again, there's been no talk of Milos He's got the sort of Marin Cilic syndrome at at a major. We don't really talk about him in the first week until he arrives in the second week and it's been a good comeback to form for Milos Raonic. He's working his way through the draw. Had a win over Riley Opelka in the third round. He plays Guido Payer in the fourth round. I would be expecting him to win that match with the form that he's in at the moment and then he's got either Roberto Batista Gut or Benoit Pair in the quarterfinal. If he's fit... But you see, this is always the thing with Milos. And he had an injury. He had, he had to see the trainer in his second round match. I don't think it was anything too serious. I mean, I always feel that Milos Raonic is a potential Grand Slam champion. He is, for me, the most impressive of that middle generation that hasn't really stepped up. Raonic, Chilich, well, Chilich did win the US Open and got to the final here and in Australia. But I still feel that... Raonic is the most impressive of that lot. He's really worked on his backhand so that it's not the, the place for everyone to go to. But I was excited about him in Australia in January and he had a poor match against Luca Pui. And I'm just thinking, what's it going to take for you to go all the way through? And I do think that there's a slight fear in Raonic's mind that he could get injured again. You know, one of the best matches I saw him play were the first three sets of his semi-final at the Australian Open a few years back against Andy Murray. And yet, he went down with the adductor injury. And that's my worry about him. If he stays fit, yeah, of course he can feature. Well, maybe that's something that Fabrice Santoro could help out with, who's uh, coaching, working with uh, Milos Raonic at the moment. Let's talk about that big match. The Kyrgios versus Nadal. The build-up was sensational. I was calling that match for Wimbledon's radio channel. It had everything. It had the talk beforehand. And I said at the end of the match, which Nadal won, of course, that there's been a lot of talk in the lead-up to this, but today, actions spoke louder than words. I was very impressed with what Nick Kyrgios brought to the table. He backed up some of what he was saying, but this was a really keyed-up Nadal. He's worried about uh, Kyrgios and what he can bring to the table at any given time, and he was up for the fight. He was sensational. The thing that stood out to me, there were a couple of things. There was a match within the match, so that all the psychological stuff that was going on, Nadal taking his time and slowing Kyrgios down between serves and at sit-downs and all that sort of stuff. It was Kyrgios getting annoyed with the umpire, which I don't necessarily agree with. And, then, and you wonder how much of that was calculated. Yeah. Yes, and then sort of, you know, when he was really keyed into the contest, the grunting that starts, and that's how you know that he's focused and, and trying to keep things going. And then Nadal just seemed to play at this, this high level all the way through. He served particularly well. It got him through some tight spots. A match that had everything. We did have the underarm serves along the way. We did have the flashy shots along the way. We had some long rallies uh, along the way. And it was a match that had the crowd enthralled. It was. And the thing I was thinking about before this match is how is Kyrgios going to go into it because if Kyrgios focuses it could be a great match and I thought to myself they've had this minor war of words in recent weeks 
So what's Kyrgios' best way of dealing with this? His best way of dealing with this is to beat Nadal. And the only way he can beat Nadal is to be focused. And mercifully, he was. And it created the most wonderful spectacle. Okay, he wasn't quite good enough to win. And it, was, it came down to a couple of points in the third and fourth set tie breaks. Um, and I think Nadal was just sharper, probably because Nadal has been more serious about his matches in recent weeks than Kyrgios has. So Kyrgios just lacked a little bit of that match toughness on the really crucial points in the tie breaks. But it was a wonderful contest and I was watching this thinking, wow, the quality is great. And I was so pleased to hear both guys come into the uh, press conference afterwards and say it was a high quality match. Kyrgios felt he played well, but felt Nadal played well. And I have to say, I agree with that. And I found myself at the end thinking, who can Nick Kyrgios listen to trust believe who can get him doing this on a regular basis because he is such an asset to the game and that was a wonderful match to watch that was a gift for Wimbledon to, and for it to happen on the fourth day that's just fantastic and I just hope there's more of that well he did say afterwards it's been interesting because Kyrgios often gets pilloried for what he says in the media conferences and, and the backwards and forwards with the journalists but he's at least honest and he says at the moment, I'm not contending for a title. I'm here to entertain. I'm not fit enough. I'm not working as hard as these other guys, which is refreshing to see. Frustrating at the same time when you hear that sort of stuff, when you think the talent that he put on display in that Nadal match, and you think if you did work that little bit harder, you would be contending for Sands. But that's not what he's about at the moment. Different sort of preparation going into it, where he was at a, one of the local drinking establishments the night before, and that was widely reported. But... I think in terms of what we saw out there on the court, apart from having a go at the umpire and getting the code violation, I think if you, you took that out of it, the rest of it is fine. The underarm serving, which copped a few boos, by the way, you very rarely hear a Wimbledon crowd boo, but it was it's entertainment. It absolutely is, but it's, but it's entertainment. Yes, for the I crowd. agree. And everyone yeah. in that stadium was on the edge of their seat. Normally the match before finishes and everyone leaves. They go and get something to eat and drink and then they slowly work their way back in. They might wander around the grounds. No one left. The stadium was full by the time that match started. It's testament to the way that it was built up. Yeah, and do you know, it strikes me, Kyrgios is 24. I think of Agassi at 24. Okay, he'd won Wimbledon and he'd been in um, three major finals by that stage, but he'd lost his way. He didn't know whether he really wanted to work on it. And he met Brad Gilbert who said... My friend, let's do this together. Let's make it fun. Let's make working at this. Let's make being focused. Let's make being in the zone something that you will enjoy doing. I'm trying to think who can Nick Kyrgios meet now who can actually give him the same thing. He has to want to do it, yes. but I think Agassi did want to. He just wanted somebody who would hold his hand in the right way along the way, along the journey. And you know, I, I really hope Kyrgios can find somebody because... It'll be great for him. It'll be great for tennis. And I remain convinced, as I always was convinced with Agassi, deep down he's a very, very good human being. Yes, he is. He's got his foundation set up. The kids love him as well. And he knows that he is putting on a show and he's entertaining the crowd. And the thing is, for all the antics, tournament directors around the world are lining up to yeah. sign him up for their tournaments and on the I remember, ATP tour. I remember in the 80s, people used to say, oh, John McEnroe, terrible behaviour, terrible behaviour. And the moment he'd gone, people said, oh, gosh, isn't tennis boring? Yes. You know, we need that sort of human interest. And I would say everybody listening to this will probably know somebody in their life who's just like Nick Kyrgios, somebody who is frustratingly unpredictable, um, immensely talented in some respect, but deep down, a golden soul. 
You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Peter Mercado and Chris Bowers with you as we wrap up the opening week of the Championships at Wimbledon. We'll talk about the doubles in a moment because there was a certain Andy Murray involved in doubles action. Lots of people interesting in the doubles as well. Yes, true. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to talk about some of the upsets from some of these highly touted players coming in. Let's rattle off some of the names. Stefanos Tsitsipas. We had uh, Sasha Zverev, Stam Vavrinka, Dominic Team, Grigor Dimitrov, Gal Monfils, Denis Shapovalov, Kyle Edmund. We had... Uh, Chilich, Anderson, Felix Ojeda-Liassim, who have not made it through to the second week. Of that sort of cluster of players, or you can maybe include another one there, who has been, I guess, the biggest upset or maybe the, the biggest disappointment from the expectations going in? I feel that on the first day, the demise of Sverif and Tsitsipas set a standard. Those are the two leading names from their generation. They're in the top ten. And they both went out disappointingly and they were both sort of at a loss to explain it in their press conference. I mean, Tsitsipas was almost sort of excruciating the way he was being so hard on himself. And I think it's very interesting, actually, to have had on that first day. I'm going to reach over a little bit into the women's game. We had the the start of the Coco Goff story. We had then the defeats for Osaka, Tsitsipas and Sverev. And Osaka and Sverev, uh, and Tsitsipas were virtually in tears. And I thought, wow, they're six years older than Goff. And it made me realise because of the sacrifices it takes to get up to the top, it is easy to forget that an awful lot of these youngsters have not had that much in the way of setbacks. And you only achieve stuff through... The, the setbacks that go with the victories. And they've had so many more victories than setbacks. And I really hope that there are some you know, kind people around Osaka and Tsitsipas and Sverev who will say, OK, you've done an awful lot of good stuff. Don't throw that out of the window. Remember that. But you've got to work your way through this. And one of the wisest words came from Novak Djokovic because he was asked whether he was surprised. And he said, yes, of course, I'm surprised that names like that go out. But they're carrying the pressure now. And, you know, you can get excited about a young generation. You can get excited about the upcomers and the freshness of youth. But then when they get up to the top, they carry that pressure. They carry the responsibility. And we've talked a long time about what an amazing generation it is, led by Federer Nadal Djokovic, and plus Murray and Vavrinka. But they've carried the pressure, and now others are having to take it on. And it's not easy. And that's what the opening day, two days, three days of Wimbledon showed. Absolutely. And the fact that the grass court season is so truncated, it is four weeks. If we're sitting down at Flushing Meadows in New York, at having the, the exact same time in the tournament doing our podcast, you guarantee that you will see those names coming through because they get a long run coming in on the hard courts. It's what they're more familiar with. Grass throws up so many variables, so many different possibilities. And, of course, we still have those big names at the top of the game, and it's hard to shake. It is um, a short grass court season, I know, but, you know, there's three weeks of grass court tournaments before Wimbledon. There's only two weeks of the year before the Australian Open, and we don't see as many shocks there. And, actually, players like uh, Zverev have not done that well at the Slams. Two quarterfinals on clay for Zverev is not a great showing from the majors. So, in a way, I feel that we're talking about 
that extra dimension of pressure. It's a strange thing. We talk about pressure. Billie Jean King used to say pressure is a privilege. It, it shows that you're actually in a position that a lot of people would like to be. And there's a lot of truth in that. On the other hand, when you get into that position, strange things happen. It's funny, when, when a player gets to match point, you often see the arm tenses up. And this whole sport, which is based on the free-flowing arm, and suddenly an arm tenses up and you can't play. And that's what it does to the psyche. And it is a rite of passage for everybody to have to deal with. It certainly is. And, and you know, Zero's talked about you know, things that are happening off the court. We won't go into them now, but no, we hope important. he's able to it's resolve that, that and yeah. then be able to focus 100% on the tennis too. We know Sitsipas is a deep thinker. He'll be working really hard, getting onto the hard courts. He should have a good uh, run through there, as will Stan. You know, he, grass is not his favourite service. Dominic Team has come off the final at Roland Garros. He tends to struggle straight after that as well. And then the local hopes. So Kyle Edmonds uh, obviously lost to Fernando Vadasco. He's struggling as well this year. You know, I don't think he was fully fit at the start of the year, and I think he's never really found his form since then. I think it's tough for him because he was two sets and three love up against Vadasco and contrived to lose. That is a tough defeat. But you know, he's had a rough year. His coach retired. It's, don't normally have that. Normally a player splits from a coach by mutual consent or because he, the player <laughs> fires the coach. just get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. But to have a coach retiring, I mean, yeah. that's that's unusual. And I think he's still getting used to the new regime. Absolutely. And uh, the thing is, too, that Dan Evans made his way through. He had a good grass court season, won a couple of challenges back-to-back. -back. He gets through to the third round and lost to Joel Sosa in a tight five-setter. Yeah, I hope that that doesn't undo Evans's confidence. I hope he can actually build on this because a feature of this match against Sosa is that Evans, he was a breakup in every set and he couldn't sustain the lead he created. I love watching Evans play. I mean, he's a wild child who's learnt to find a way of dealing with his his love of partying and and to be a, you know a top 50 tennis player i think he's enrichment of the game he's an, as much of an enrichment for me as kyrgios would be if, if he got his act together um, and i really hope evans can build on this but i think it could be you know could have knocked his confidence a bit to have been up in every set and lost three of the five Andy Murray played in the doubles. He returned with Pierre Hugobert. They started off on the number one court. They had a win in four sets. And then we're out on the number two court on day number six, and they had a loss. I think that was the expectation that they weren't necessarily going to win the tournament. They were going to struggle through. Once they got to the seeded players, it was going to get a lot trickier for Andy. He's playing with Serena Williams. They had a win in the mixed doubles first up. How have you assessed Andy Murray coming back? with his doubles form and what do you think we can expect going forward not just here at the championships but beyond well it's funny I thought Murray was being over optimistic when he entered the Queen's Club tournament I thought it's, it's great to enter an ATP tour event because the doubles scoring system means that his matches are seldom likely to go beyond about 70-75 minutes and I thought that was good for him he then had this dream run at Queen's when he ends up winning the tournament with Feliciano Lopez and I think that's created artificial expectations he lost in the first round at Eastbourne with Marcelo Mello he won one match with uh, Pierre Huguerbert. But, you know, they were switching right court, left court the whole time. They started off in their first round match uh, with Murray playing deuce court and Herbert playing the ad court. And then they switched in the middle of that. And then they switched in the middle of their match against the sixth seeds, Mektish and Sugar. I just think they're not... They haven't given themselves enough time to do this properly. 
and in some ways I think Murray still needs the matches and we have created artificial expectations for him and he's created them for himself by the way he did so well at Queen's Club. I think he's probably delighted now that he entered the mixed doubles because I think he's got a much better chance of getting some decent matches and they are best of three and I do think he needs that and he's talking about playing singles on the North American hardcourt swing. He's talking about you know possibly Canada, Cincinnati, US Open and if he's serious about that he needs to build up slowly because matches on a grass court where you can have odd movements you know he's almost better on a hard court where he knows exactly what his foot will do when it hits the surface yeah and uh well let's see what happens with serena and andy as they move through the second week of the championships could help serena actually more than andy because yes. she's not been playing that well in the singles and it could easily relax her she looked far more relaxed in the mixed doubles than she did in her singles and the crowd went absolutely bananas when they walked out onto court uh, Jay Clark, we don't talk a lot about him on this podcast, but he got the uh, golden ticket of playing with uh, the player of the moment in Coco Golf after abandoning his previous partner in Harriet Dart. I don't know how that went down, but if you get the text, Coco wants to play, do you accept it? Well, Pierre Hugobert had the same thing when Murray phoned him because Pierre Hugobert had decided not to play doubles and he said to uh, Nicolas Mao, his regular doubles partner, I'm not playing Wimbledon. Suddenly he gets the phone call. You know, to be a top tennis player, you've got to have a ruthless streak in you. And I don't blame Jay Clark. And Harriet Dart is a feisty character as well. I think she <laughs> she can take that. Um, I do think that uh, it was good for Goff because the magic doesn't always translate. And it didn't transfer from her singles to the mixed doubles. And they were beaten 6-1, 6-4 and, you know, took them a set to get going. But I just think it's great that, you know... There was a time, I was talking to Stan Smith earlier today, the Wimbledon champion from 1972. Were you looking for a pair of free shoes? I wasn't looking for a pair of free <laughs> shoes, although it's interesting, my daughter knows the name Stan Smith, but only as a pair shoes. of shoes, yes. not through the uh, you know the tennis champion. And I said, yeah, I know you won the, the, the US Open and Wimbledon. Did you ever win the uh, Australian or the French? He said, only in doubles. Now, you hardly ever get a player saying that these days. You know, like he says, well, OK, I didn't win the singles, but I did win the doubles. So I've got, you know, French Open and Australian Open titles. And I think it's great for the game of tennis, not just for doubles, but for the game of tennis, that we see some of the big names, for whatever reason, playing in the doubles and the mixed competitions because it just it adds an extra spice. And in a way, we're looking to make this sport attractive because we all love it, but it's got to be, it's got to earn its place in a very competitive global sporting marketplace. And it's, you know, it's, it's only good when you get these names, uh, male or female, playing in uh, the, the big events, the main draws. Well, while we've got big names playing in big events, we lost a big name uh, who announced his retirement pre-tournament, and that is Marcos Bagdatis. And uh, it was one of the, the best farewells you could ever see. He lost to Matteo Berrettini out on the number two court, I think it was. And uh, after the match, basically he gave away his entire tennis kit. So the shoes went, all the shirts, all the rackets disappeared to members of the crowd. And they were having a rollicking good time there. But you could see the emotion on the face of Marcos Bagdadis. He He's a player that's given absolutely everything. He's a fan favourite all around the world. I, you know, see him playing in Australia year after year and the support that he got year after year. He made the final. It's a long time ago 2006, now. 2006, yeah. And he's just everywhere he, he goes, he is so popular. And he's been an, a great addition to the game. And he'll be a sad loss. Yes, absolutely. I I agree wholeheartedly with all of that but I'd like to also look at the other side of Baghdadis and that is that he was a um, a sole flag carrier for a small country he's put tennis on the map in Cyprus and you know we think of oh, we're losing Baghdadis but 
Cyprus is losing its flag carrier for tennis. And, you know, we forget that the growth of the sport depends on there being heroes in places where the sport hasn't got that much of a foothold. And, you know, tennis in Cyprus is vastly bigger now than it was um, when Baghdadis was making his way as one of the world's leading juniors in the early 2000s. And uh, that's a side of it that we mustn't overlook either. Absolutely. Now, well, there'll be plenty of features about Marcos Baghdadis. I hope he comes back to Australia, by the way, just even do. just as a guest. Yes. And he can get yes. the round of applause yeah. from everyone because yeah. he's certainly well received. And there's so there. many Gre- Greeks in Melbourne who think of him as one of their own. Exactly. So it was sad to see Marcos Baghdadis, but a great career, and he certainly got everything out of himself across that career. There have been some funny moments along the way too. I was doing a match on court 18, and it was going along quite nicely, and everything was going pretty much according to plan, and then all of a sudden a unidentified missile made its way onto the court. Someone had decided to open their champagne, not quite open their champagne, and uh, they just had the cork pulled out and unfortunately it was shaken up. So the cork flew out of the bottle and landed on the number 18 court. Stopping play, a let was called. The uh, cork was picked up and it's just one of those things that happens at this tournament. As you've got with a living surface, there are other things that happen as well. Yeah, and I've, I had something similar happen in a match. I was commentating on court two and... Uh, we, we, the, the cameras went straight on to the person having their champagne. So either it's their moment of fame or their moment of infamy. <laughs> um, I was doing a match on court 17 on the first day, and I think it was Marius Coppel. He chased down a lob and crashed into the ball kid. And he basically put his arm around the ball kid as if to say, are you OK? In the middle of the point. And then went and chased the next shot, which I've never seen happen before. But for me, the moment of the week has to be the mixed doubles on court 15. When a malfunction in the court sprinkler system... <laughs> caused the water to start now initially it was uh, firing away from the court and it was in a change of ends and it was artem sitak and laura siegemund who were sitting down and siegemund noticed this that the the water was starting to circulate i mean this is what these sprinklers do they they go around in a very slow circle it was coming round, and she dashed and grabbed her bag and scarpered Where's the teamwork there? Where's the sort of word for Artem Sitak, her partner, saying, Oi, partner, get out of the way. You know, you're about to get drenched. And, of course, the jet of water comes around. The first thing it does is knock over a a rubbish bin and then completely soaks Artem Sitak. But I spoke to Artem today and he was saying, well, um, I've been playing this game for years. I've been plying my trade and now I'm the talk of social media because of getting soaked from a sprinkler that went off the wrong place. Well, anyway, you can be famous. If you can be involved in a meme, then I suppose that's the main thing for Artem SeaTac. But as we come to an end for our podcast here in the broadcast roof, because it now is dark and everyone's gone home and there's a little bit of light rain falling too, perfect timing after play has finished. Going to put you on the spot, Chris Bowers. Who wins in seven days' time? Um, in seven days' time is the women's singles, so that would be either Ash Barty or Karolina Pliskova. Okay, let's say eight days' time and I'll get my dates right. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's going to be Djokovic against either Federer or Nadal, and I just have this feeling that even though I think he's been distracted by a lot of um, tennis politics, Djokovic 
when he gets through his match against Umber, he's suddenly going to see the home straight and he's going to really lift his level. And I think Djokovic will be holding the trophy for a fifth time in eight days' time. I went with Roger Federer at the start, but I think if it's a Roger-Rafa semi-final, the way Rafa's playing at the moment, he could beat Roger here. He certainly could. And could lift the title again. And he could go back-to-back, Roland Garros to Wimbledon again. That would be something. It would. And now we've committed all of that to tape and people are listening to it on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Chris, we will let you get home because it has been a long day. We've got Sacred Sunday coming up, which is a day off at the championships, the only day off we get at tennis events. So we'll enjoy that. And then, of course, all the action coming up next week. Looking forward to it. It's going to be another big week to keep up with all the latest news. ATPtour.com will keep you up to date throughout the championships here at Wimbledon. My thanks to Chris Bowers. I'm Peter Mercado, and I hope you can join us next week when we'll be looking back on the championship match and discussing the events of week two. In the meantime, enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.